Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Here's some things I say in the credits that most people skip, so I'm saying them here. If you'd like past episodes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com, follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at Not Smart Blog. Yes, it started as a blog, and now I have that name forever. Also, Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. Several hundred thousand people there you can talk to about the shows. And if you'd like to support this operation to make it better to help pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Oh, yes. Also, a live show in New York City at Caveat, August 13th. Putting that together right now. Also, a documentary series at Himalaya about what does the word genius really mean and can you find genius within yourself, create it in others. It's really great. I've interviewed more than 35 people, experts, people with very high IQs, people who are artistic savants. I'm very much looking forward to sharing that with you very soon and just all sorts of other stuff. I'll tell you all about it as it happens. Let's get right into the show. This is The Extended Mind with Annie Murphy. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode... In this episode, we are sitting down with Annie Murphy Paul, and it was a great honor and an intense pleasure to welcome Annie onto the show because she's an acclaimed science writer, one of the best. And her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Scientific American, Slate, Time Magazine, so many others. She's the author of Origins, The Cult of Personality, and her TED Talk titled What We Learn Before We Are Born has been viewed more than 2.6 million times. She's a graduate of Yale University and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. And she has a new book out, just out, titled The Extended Mind, all about how the brain is part of a system, many systems. And it's those systems that constitute the mind. In other words, our minds are not, as she puts it, brain bound, but they extend to our computers, our notebooks, our friends and neighbors and colleagues and partners. The environments in which we move, natural and otherwise, deeply influence how we think, what we think, and what we can think. And in addition, everything the brain does becomes a reference for extended thinking, which means When we gesture our hands, those gestures then get rolled back into the next sequence of cognitions. And that's true for just about everything the brain puts out there. Output becomes input becomes output. The same is true during a conversation, during journaling, writing of any kind, and so on. And these feedback loops 
extend the mind. We get deep into all of this in the interview and discuss many other things, neurocentric bias, brain-bound thinking, outdated metaphors, and we talk about a new metaphor, which is to consider the mind as if it is a thieving magpie. All of that and more, so let's get into it right now with Annie Murphy-Paul discussing the extended mind. Hey, it's so cool to uh, to meet you. I think you're a fantastic journalist, and I love all the things you do in the world. Thank you. I've admired your work for a long time, so this is a real pleasure. Oh, that's great. All right, this is over. We're just going to go get a drink and, and talk how awesome we are. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, reading your introduction, I was like, yeah, this is good stuff. Like, uh, there's all, mm-hmm. all sorts of all sorts of things in there that I'm like, yes, I one million percent agree with all these things, and these are uh, also how I pay my <laughs> bills by telling people this stuff in in three thousand different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I really enjoy. Right, right. Uh, I I remember way years ago talking about just an alarm clock and a uh, is an indication that you have um, you have bounded uh, <laughs> your the brain is bounded in its abilities to be super super smart. Uh, you need something yes. to get you up and the, and then also like, you know, I have notepads everywhere. I have a, I have a notepad in the shower, which is part of my extended mind. Uh, I have one that you, <laughs> you stick to the uh, shower and, um, Oh really? And with a, with a, uh, waterproof lead pencil. Uh, and, uh, so our, interesting. and I take shower notes all the time. I have a pile of them over here. Uh, these are actual, uh, I have actual sh- shower, shower notes that, uh, <laughs> like this is this is a you can see it's that it's weird waterproof paper and uh let, let me uh let's see what this one says biocentrism locusts enjoy destroying fields i have no idea what that means but i did write it in the shower one day <laughs> in the shower it seemed brilliant <laughs> it's just to keep me to, it's just to keep me from going nuts in there uh okay any murphy paul uh in Connecticut, across the uh, the uh, information superhighway, part of the extended mind. Um, <laughs> let me ask this. This is something I prefer to do here lately when it comes to book stuff. And I was leading up to that, uh, trying to validate with you uh, and commiserate with you on book stuff. Uh, what made you want to write mm-hmm. this book? What was the like incepting moment? What 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 decide? How did you decide to put yourself through such a miserable and taxing process? Why did you want to do this? <laughs> Oh, and it was even more miserable and taxing than you can imagine because it originally started out as a book about something completely different. Mm. And as you know, with books, they kind of have a life of their own Mm. and they tell you what they want to be. And originally I had started out writing a book about the science of learning and I labored at that for a while, a long while. And what I had at the end of it was kind of a collection of techniques more than a big idea that that could pull it all together. And that's, I'm just, I'm a sucker for a big idea. So I, that wasn't going to do it for me in terms of, you know, it is a lot of work to write a book. And if I was going to do all that work, then it needed to be something I could really be excited about. So in the process, though, of doing all that research on the science of learning, I kept coming up against this idea that thinking isn't really what we think it is. In other words, we imagine that thinking goes on in our heads and we focus a lot on the brain and getting the brain to work better. But coming from different directions, I kept seeing references to how, no, actually, 
you know, thinking happens with the body and thinking is influenced by the spaces we're in and thinking is happens in the interactions between two people. And so it wasn't until I found, I came across the idea of the theory, the theory of the extended mind, which actually emerged from philosophy. So you can see how far I was ranging and how very many studies I read to get to this point. But um, this idea of the, the extended mind, which is that we don't just think with the brain, we think with all these outside the head resources, and that it's actually the stuff outside our brains that makes us smart. And that was a big idea that I could really get excited about. I uh, feel you so strongly on this. Uh, I, uh, not to get into my stuff again, but I, I did something very similar. Uh, the book that I just turned in about how minds change is uh, started out about social change. Uh, I wanted to understand mm, how mm. Um, same-sex marriage went from being 61% opposed to 61% mm, in favor. Mm. And about uh, it mm. took about 12 years total, but the but it was this creep that had happened many, many times that like that there was be this, uh, almost about to happen and then, then not almost about to happen. And then, then it just went and exploded. And I wanted to understand that at the level of neurons and psychology, not political mm, science. Mm. And I discovered very mm. quickly what you were getting into, which is the psych the science and psychology of learning, updating our priors, assimilation and accommodation, all that stuff. And, uh, that started years and years of going, Oh boy. And, uh, but I'd already sold the book and they were like, you have to write it. So, uh, so, so, yeah. so that's, I feel you yeah, very strongly. Uh, this is a, <laughs> such a cool idea. I love um, that I, I'll, another thing I like about your book is I was not on board uh, at the beginning. I was like, come on. Uh, and that's, a, that's always fun for me because I'm reading the first page. And I'm like, okay, I'll give you a second. And then like the second page, I was like, okay, mm -hmm. I see what you're saying. And then by the, you started putting in mm -hmm. examples, I was like, well, damn it, she's right. And, 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 so <laughs> well, I'm glad I could convince you. <laughs> I didn't know you were a doubter. Uh, well, I just want to bring, but I understood that I just didn't understand the premise uh, uh, like I thought I did. I had made a, a wild assumption that was not the actual argument you were making. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's start mm -hmm, out with that. Mm -hmm. um, you open the book with a line, uh, use your head. We say that all the time. And you refer to something called a mm -hmm. neurocentric bias. Uh, what yeah. is a neurocentric bias? A neurocentric bias is the way all of us, society, kind of idealizes the brain, glorifies the brain. I would even say fetishizes the brain. I mean, if you look at how the brain is literally visually depicted, you, it, it's often this sort of glowing orb, you know, <laughs> like it's some kind of sacred object or something. And yeah. you hear people say, and I'm talking about like popular science books and presentations, that the, the human brain is so extraordinary. It's so amazing. It's the most complex object in the universe. And what happens is that when our own brains don't work so well, which, ha which happens, um, we assume that, well, it must be, I got a, I got a bum one, you know, cause the brain's <laughs> so amazing. But in fact, the brain is a, the biological brain, brain is very limited in what it can do. I mean, it's it's a biological organ. It evolved to do certain things very well, but not to do the things that we ask of it, you know, in our complex, knowledge-centric, modern society. And so there's this gap between what we think of 
how we think of the brain. And I always think the brain must have like a really good PR agent. Mm -hmm. Like it gets really good press. Mm -hmm. Like it's really always being praised. And yet the, the real scientific story of the last 20 years, if you look at the research is all that scientists have learned about the brain's limits in terms of attention and motivation and persistence and uh, memory. And, and we kind of know this, right? I mean, like our brains let us down all the time, but we still have this idea that the brain is so powerful um, on its own. And that's just not the case. It's actually, the brain actually needs a lot of help. And so what my book is about is getting more skillful at, at recruiting those, those, that assistance and getting better at thinking outside the brain instead of relying on the brain alone. Oh, yeah. I love, I love this. Cats are okay. It's post COVID interviews allow for cats. And I'm very uh, okay with that. My (laughs) my own will try to come in here eventually. Um, What's your cat's name? Leroy. Leroy. Um, or when he's feeling fancy, Le Roy. <laughs> That's good. My cat's name is Simon. <laughs> I appreciate cats with proper names. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, this When I was reading this, uh, the opening of your book, the it reminded me of something that was in um, a uh, a book about cultural cognition I read a, a while back with Hazel that by Hazel Marcus. The title of it esca- yes. escapes me, but I do remember Culture Clash. Maybe that's. Uh, th- or clash, just clash. It's clash. Yes, like I met yeah, I met yeah. um, Hazel at some conference at some point, and and then got her book. and And there's some there's this bit in it about um, it, in a lot of Western thinking that that who's that the lineage goes back to the Greeks. Um, there's this attempt to sort of disassemble everything into its component parts, reductionism, and, mm-hmm. and sort of watchmaker ourselves. And the mm. thinking of the brain in that way uh, leak, sort of leads to a lot of these ideas that you're busting. But then there's this Eastern thing, which is she's that's her like bread and butter is, is the difference between how we um, abstract out what we are using different cultural tradi- uh, lineages. And in a, a mm. more Eastern way of looking at it is to think of uh, systems as being inter- interconnected and being permeable. And she was saying there's a, you would think of a plant uh, in an Eastern uh, frame as being a continuous system between the sun and the atmosphere and the nutrients mm-hmm. and the soil and the plant. And the plant is the is that entire system being manifested mm. in this particular way that we've decided to pay attention to. And mm. whereas a more Western way of looking at it is thinking of the plant as an individual thing entity that must be studied and put under a microscope and there's a border around it and everything outside that border is not plant and everything inside of it is plant. Right, um, right. I was right. thinking this very strongly reading your introduction, this concept could be applied to the brain. I want to see if you would just agree with this, that there's a way of looking at it, which is like in this box is mind and then outside this box is not mind. And we use the brain as that box. But uh, but you could do the same thing with the plant all the way up to the sun system, which is everything that the brain interacts with is also mind mm-hmm. because it's one continuous system. It evolved in that system, and it's got to be an interplay and a symbiosis and a permeability and all this other stuff. Am I on the right track here? <laughs> I think you are, actually. And I'm glad that you referenced Eastern thinking because a, someone who read an advanced copy of the book said to me just recently, you know, your book has a real, real Buddhist flavor, yeah. which really delighted me because I've been very personally deeply influenced by Buddhism, but there's no reference to Buddhism in the book. But I think that what comes through is this idea that we are not bounded, fixed, 
sealed off separate individuals. We're part of an and a whole ecology. And of course, another part of the that Western style of thinking that you mentioned is that we separate the brain from our own bodies, mm -hmm. you know, not just from the world around us, but from our own bodies as if like there's some, you know, um, disconnection between the head and, and the rest of the body. And that's a mistake. I think that's a really serious mistake. I think it's a mistake that causes a lot of, um, a lot of pain and suffering in our, in our education system, in our, in our workplace, in our daily lives, you know? And so if any, if anything comes out of my own work on this book, I'd like it to be a process of reconnecting those things mm -hmm. that we've, that we've, you know, as you say, there's, there's the, it's the Western style of thought to separate and divide and categorize and parcel out. And there are some benefits to that. I mean, that's a lot of what science does is, is take up, take things apart and study each part individually. But I think it's, the, the, we're seeing the limits of that approach. And what we need to do now is bring those pieces back together. Mm -hmm. And in particular, you know, what I'm saying in, in this book is that we need to remember that the brain is not operating in isolation. It's operating in a body, in a physical space, in relationship with other people. Mm -hmm. And that's that's where our focus should be, not on the brain as this isolated organ. Yeah, well, I feel I've felt your your Buddhism coming through because it was because uh, <laughs> I also I feel like there's a lot of um, there is a lot of um, value in thinking systemically, and uh, strangely enough, thinking about thinking about thinking systemically is also very valuable. Mm -hmm. um, the and you mentioned you know as you start out the attention I got my notes right here the attention to memory and uh, abstract concepts, persistence with challenge. These are things that we have noticed are quite limited. In fact, I, I've been able to, uh, pay, I paid off my student loans telling people that, um, but <laughs> and there are other things that brains can do very well. And, um, but you bring up this really interesting, uh, Ted talk worthy, uh, uh, motif, which is as the world's problems grow more complex, I'm paraphrasing you, the brain grows more unequal to the task of solving them. Let's unpack that for a second. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, we're approaching a crisis point here <laughs> to, to put it bluntly, which is the complexity of the world we live in. The world we have created is outstripping our ability to manage it. And just leaning on the brain is not going to cut it anymore. Um, because, and I think, you know, even our experience over the past year of the pandemic it shows us that in the sense that we've all been brains in front of screens for a year, right? And it's not as if our brain, you know, there's this ideology ideology out there that the brain is like a muscle, you know, and you just need to work it harder and it bulks up and it'll get ever more powerful. I think we've seen the fallacy of that over the past year because we've all been working our brains like crazy and we're exhausted, we're distracted, we're dispirited, mm -hmm. you know, this is not the path to thinking more intelligently. The The path to thinking more intelligently is to ask our brains to do less in a way, or at least ask it to play a different role. Mm -hmm. And the way I think about that is that we should think of the brain less as a workhorse and more as like an orchestra conductor. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course the brain is still involved. I mean, I'm not in any way saying that the brain isn't important or isn't central, but what we ask the brain to do can, we can conceive of that differently. And when we think of it as a conductor, as kind of like the 
place where all these different resources are being pulled in and and organized and dispatched as skillfully as possible. That's how we want our brain to operate, not as this donkey that we just keep <laughs> lashing, you know, <laughs> until it like keels over and dies, yeah. which is what we've been doing. Well, you, I mean, this is something that I jam out on all the time. The idea that um, you say in the book, like we, you talk about them as biologically secondary characteristics. Like um, mm, yeah. we clearly, and this has been a line of of uh, this has been a foundation and a framing that's been around for a while, and I will fight to the death to keep it in the world. It's still mm -hmm. very plainly obvious that this uh, we are a social primate that evolved um, to do a certain thing, and then we we built it like it took sixty six years to go from the uh, Wright brothers to being on the moon. Uh, mm -hmm. It took you know roughly a million years to develop a facial recognition within the, the social mm -hmm. primate brain we evolve pretty mm -hmm. slow when it comes to updating the the wet works of the brain um right. but we're in this environment that is moving way super fast faster even than culture can keep up with it so right um i remember uh my textbooks in high school uh in south mississippi which you know you have to grade me on a curve in that regard but there's a <laughs> there was a i mean that we were using textbooks from the uh, 70s and 80s that uh, still were saying, what is DNA? You know, like, like what, what is, where does the moon go at night? No, no, they weren't that bad, but they, but, but the, it's a very, uh, the, the textbooks update slowly. The culture updates as fast as it can, but we're seeing mm -hmm. right now a generational spread across uh, Zoomers and millennials and Gen X and boomers where it, within their silos, there are things that, that, are hard to, to communicate back and forth across these two these worlds, like we're right. we're, we're we're in the middle of a cultural um, of a, such a rapid cultural like surge that um, you have to modulate your references in different uh, social environments. You have to modulate if this joke will land in different social environments. You have to modulate if I um, can uh, refer even to this song in a different social environments. That's just pop totally. culture. The idea of having to um, worry about ideas like uh, the global financial marketplace and uh, um, climate climate change, change international disputes. Yeah. Uh, are yeah. are these UFO things actual real UFO foes, or is that a trick <laughs> of the camera? Um, mm. Was the election stolen? Um, is the Earth flat? These are we are having this epistemic crisis that you're that you uh, were commenting on in a sort of a t uh, orthogonal way, but the you're talking about like physics and calculus is the brain doesn't just like emerge we have like a, a um i know i'm going on but i'm very passionate about this there's a but we have a a module in uh brain systems for identifying faces and mm -hmm. so we get we were born with some things that are that are real useful we're not born with a physics module or a calculus module uh um and you talk about marketplaces and other things, and you call these biologically secondary characteristics. And you're saying that you say that the demands of life may actually have reached a point where we are exceeding uh, our cognitive capacity to deal with certain very complex problems. And you even mentioned that IQ uh, may mm -hmm. have uh, arced and leveled off. Please, yeah. please unpack some of this stuff that <laughs> I went on and on about just now. Sure, sure. Well, well, I'll start with that fascinating idea of biologically primary and secondary abilities. And that's a, an idea put forth by David Geary, who is a professor at the University of Missouri. And he's saying, look, there are certain things that the human organism evolved to do and to learn how to do very easily. We all pick up 
our native language, for example, as tiny children, just by being around people who speak that language. We don't even need to be explicitly taught that. We're all good at navigating through a three-dimensional landscape and finding our way back home because that's pretty key to survival. And we're all good. Well, not all, but a lot of us are good at interacting with other people. And uh, under, as, as you say, things like um, recognizing faces and feeling and sensing what other people are, are feeling, that kind of thing. We don't have to be taught that. But the reason we have school, formal systems of education, is that that's not the case for things like, well, for things like reading and writing. We have to be um, deliberately and very intentionally taught that, but also, but, and that goes even more so for things, counterintuitive kind of bodies of information like, um, like physics. And I think what we've forgotten is that the brain can so effortlessly and so, um, effectively do these things like use the body, navigate through space, interact with other people. And instead of leveraging those human strengths, we insist on turning everything into an abstract, a, a, a process of abstract thinking and learning, which we're actually not that good at. You know, I mean, there's this fascinating body of research on physics education. And I keep, I keep referring to physics because it's kind of the paradigmatic example of something we didn't evolve to learn because it's so very counterintuitive and it took human beings a long time to even figure out how it works. And we have to recapitulate that process every time a student learns physics. But there's this fascinating body of research on, in physics education that shows that students, many students who take a semester of physics it, it taught in the conventional way, they understand physics less well after a semester of, oh, of, of being taught <laughs> physics. Yeah, like they were better off before they, before they entered the classroom. So what can we do about that? In the, in the extended mind, I talk about how what's lacking in conventional physics instruction, which is usually taught via lectures and textbooks, is a physical embodied experience of the forces we're talking about, of the forces that are being learned about in physics. And without that, it's just words and it makes no sense to students and they don't get it. And even if they can churn out an A on the test, they haven't really deeply understood it. And what's missing is that physical embodied experience, which is how humans have learned, you know, across millennia. It's, it's just our particular culture that's created this thing called the classroom where you sit and listen to someone drone on for 60 minutes. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know 
what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program... It's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance 
for nothing. Absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And now we return to our program. I'm David McRaney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. We're talking to Annie Murphy-Paul, who wrote a book called The Extended Mind. We're jumping right back into the conversation about schooling, formal education and schooling. Well, that's, that's, I, I, I am, have, I'm duly fascinated or are compelled by the idea that we, we, we are born into this world and have to be bootstrapped and like, okay, let me catch you up to where we are in the story so far. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Like, there's that. There's a lot. There. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, <laughs> right. and then there's a point where you're like, okay, wait, that's, there's just too much. Let me sum up some of this. Uh, and then on your own time, maybe you can focus on one of these things. And, um, hmm. that's hmm. a, that's a beautiful and strange thing that's true about being a person. Um, mm-hmm. but then there's also this like other thing you, you, you hit on about, um, these systems have become much more complicated than you could. They're, they're so complex at this point. We may we may have reached a point where no one person can understand any system in totality. Uh, so right. we need lots and lots of very thin sliced expertise to understand even something as as simple as like you know how to how to get coffee from this place to your mouth. <laughs> like that's, that's so so every, uh, everything at some level has to be the YouTube explainer like level of understanding, and you have to accept that. Um, uh, it also means we have to learn to think better with other people, yes. right? Oh my God, because yes. no one person can hold all that information and understand all that expertise. So we have to get much better at sharing our expertise with each other and making our expertise explicit to other people instead of holding it in our heads. That's a, that's the a, a key. Oh, point, good. I Let's think. see. Now, this is what we do for a living. So this is the uh, the science. Yeah. Science communication is more important than ever. Do you hear that, people who pay people who do that? Mm. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> uh, I want to talk about these two th- two here, ideas, here. and then we'll get into your uh, sort of your, your your finer points. The you talk about how this came to be this sort of conception of everything is in the brain, and the brain, mm. and if you want to do better at life, make brain better. Um, mm-hmm. The you talk about computers being this uh, useful but now problematic metaphor, and then 
this the second wave of what if we talked about it more in terms of building a muscle and having growth and grit. So if you could uh, right. unpack those two things, I'd love to hear about how how it came to be that we got this sort of strange uh, shared idea about it all's got to be in this brain thing. Yeah, well, I, if you wanted to go way back, I think we'd be talking about Rene Descartes mm. and the idea that you know uh, that mind and body are separate, and I think that therefore I am. But I think, but then. Fast forwarding to the middle of the last century when the first uh, computers, uh, mainframe computers were developed, it was really interesting looking into that history that at first when these com- these hulking giant computers that could calculate uh, numbers and, you know, they're not nearly as powerful as, our, as this laptop I'm using right now, but at the time they seemed obviously absolutely amazing. And what's interesting is that when they were written about in news accounts, people said, oh, this is an electronic brain. This is, they compared it to a brain, but then very quickly that metaphor got turned around and we started saying, oh, our brains are like a computer. And that is a useful metaphor to an extent, but it's also a very flawed metaphor. Um, it's flawed in the sense that a computer doesn't have friends. It doesn't uh, relate to other people. It doesn't really care if other people are around. A computer doesn't operates exactly the same way, whether, you know, this laptop is open on my desk like it is right now, or if I took it to a park and was outside in the green and the the fresh air, my brain would be working very differently in those two settings. But the computer is like, whatever, it's just, it's, just, it's all the same. And the, and the a computer doesn't have a body, um, which is a very interesting direction that artificial intelligence is going now. You know, for many years, the idea was, that uh, what was important was the information processing aspect. And that if you just got enough power in that regard, uh, artificial intelligence could solve all our problems and become smarter than we are. But the direction it's going now is very interesting. It's realizing that an embod- something like a body is actually necessary to really operate intelligently in our world. So it's a lot of it's um, that computer metaphor is actually um, receding in importance, although not, not in the popular mind, unfortunately, that still dominates the way we think about, about the brain. And, and, uh, I think that's a problem. And then, as you mentioned, there's this, um, metaphor that came after the computer metaphor, which also has its, its benefits. That's the idea that the brain is something like a muscle that you exercise, it gets stronger, that is, it is characterized by a kind of grit that you muster from within. And, but that too has its drawbacks, um, in part because, as we were talking about, uh, you know, our experience of the pandemic shows us that using our brains a whole lot without a break, without um, getting out of the house and seeing people in person, that does not necessarily promote the most intelligent thinking. Um, so, what I I, I introduce. Um, in the book, a, a third metaphor that I hope will catch on, which is that the brain is like a magpie, one of these birds that gathers all kinds of things from its environment, you know, all kinds of crazy things off, often, like not just twigs and bark, but, you know, wire and um, plastic drinking straws and kind of like everything in its environment gets woven into its nest. And that is what our brains are like, is what I'm arguing that we take the raw materials of our environment and we weave them into our thinking. And that's how thought is constructed. I like this. I like this a lot. I like to think of, uh, I'd like to think of myself as a magpie. Um, <laughs> this is, uh, 
And I, I, a lot of sci-fi pops me up when you talk about this too. Just the, you know, the concept of like, uh, we, we couldn't travel through to other places without taking the earth with us. Like we, mm, like it's, uh, mm. you can't just stick a person in a box and send them away. You have to put it in atmosphere and there has, there has to be food and there has to be, uh, something for them to think and feel and do. They, they have to take a, they have to take the thing in which we evolved, this, the, the environment which we evolved mm-hmm. has to also go with us because we are not isolated from it. We are, we are that entire system is us. Uh, we're constituted by it. So yeah. good. And, and the, the magpie thing is beautiful in that, like, um, even if we were to go do all that, that, that we would still be grabbing, as soon as we move into another space, we'd be pulling stuff from that space and putting it into ourselves mm-hmm. and being like, oh, I'll take a little bit of this piece of Mars, I'll take a little bit of that, and now I'm thinking about red sunsets. Uh, and, and, and Yeah. And, uh, yeah. The, this, um, I, well, when we think of long, long-range space flight, too, the biggest concern is people who are divide who are separated from nature and the outdoors for a really long time really suffer and really um, languish you know so there's if we're gonna engage in like flights to mars someday and stuff like that we have to figure out literally as you're saying how to take the earth yeah we, we're, with, we with are them. this i know this this we're getting right back into um eastern they must thinking on this but mm. like you know we are a pocket of we are a portion of the earth moving through as an entity, we are a continuous system w- with all the systems that allow us to continue to eat, to eat and not die. So, uh, right. for us to travel to other places, we have to take the system with us. We can't, we are, we can't just mm-hmm. go as things in spacesuits, but even the spacesuit is the system, like inside of it is mm-hmm. atmosphere. And, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to go on a tangent here. Let me pull back. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the, um, you talk about all these things and then you bring in your new construction here and then you take a second to talk about Clark and Calmers who put this out. Mm-hmm. Who are they and what do they give us? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andy Clark and David Chalmers are two philosophers who came out with an article in 1998 called The Extended Mind. And interestingly, it was rejected by three academic journals before it was it was accepted by a journal called Analysis. And it later became one of the most cited articles in mm. philosophy. So I like that as a story mm-hmm. that's encouraging to all us writers out there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in this article, they put forth the idea that the brain doesn't, I mean, sorry, the mind doesn't stop at the, at the boundary of skin and skull. That, uh, and the, actually the example that they used in 1998 was the, the notebook, the humble notebook, that if you have a notebook that's kind of always with our, within arm's reach and you use it to make lists and write down ideas and maybe draw a diagram or a flowchart or something like that notebook is effectively a part of your thinking process and even a part of your mind. And what's interesting is that when the article came out, it was greeted with a lot of skepticism, a lot of, of derision actually. Um, and then something funny happened, which was as the smartphone was introduced and people started using them and incorporating them into their daily lives. This really wacky idea that something outside your head could affect, could effectively um, carry out some of your mental functions started to seem like kind of plausible, you know, and there's another, there's another psychologist, sorry, another philosopher, Ned Block, who said that um, he has said that the extended mind, the theory of the extended mind was false when it was written, but later became true. <laughs> like, like maybe in 2007 when the first iPhone was okay. introduced. Um, 
Yeah. So I think technology is the easiest way into understanding the extended mind because we all know that our 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 smartphones are kind of like mini brains, right? I mean, who remembers phone numbers anymore because our our, our phones do that for us. What's even more interesting to me is that there are other resources outside the brain resources that we extend our thinking with. And those include things like, you know, as we've been talking about the body, physical spaces, the minds of other people. And that's where, that's where the, the really exciting part of the extended mind is for me. Yes. I love this idea of the notebook and, um, the, uh, a calendar and, uh, a to-do list and, uh, file folders and a lot in a bookshelf and uh, clocks and all these things absolutely extend to what the mind is able to do. But you go into some new territory. I'm just going to bump through these one at a time with the time that we have available to us. You start out with interoception uh, 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 or interoception. I'm not going to step all over that. What is that? And what are you talking about? And how does yeah. this extend the mind? Yes. Well, so interoception, it's a fancy word for something we all have great familiarity with, which is gut feelings, you know, feelings that a, a sense or a thought that doesn't seem to come from the brain, but that seems to well up from the body. And we know that our gut feelings can sometimes inform us in ways that, you know, our, our, our thinking mind can't. And so scientists are beginning to study just what this is. And this is the, the field of interoception research. And it turns out we have just as we have senses, sense, sensory organs that help us um, take in information from the outside, like you know we we have we have eyes, we have ears, we have um, olfactory bulbs, and we have sense organs on the inside as well that tell that feed us the steady stream of information about what's going on in our bodies. And it turns out that people people vary on how attuned they are to in, to their interoceptive signals. Some people, for example, are able to hear their own heartbeats or to sense their own heartbeats. And other people are like, "What are you talking about? That's not possible." <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out that people who are more attuned to their interoceptive cues are able to make smarter decisions because it's uh, the body is kind of giving them a little nudge when they encounter uh, a pattern or a, an experience that they've that they've seen before. And the because those patterns are so complex, they're they're not available to con to our conscious minds, but they're held in our non-conscious uh, uh, in our non-conscious mind. And it's the body that kind of rings a bell to say, okay, you've seen this before and here's, here's how to react. Um, so if you're more attuned to that, you can use that information to inform your decision. But if you're pushing your internal signals aside and just trying to power through as, as we do, that's more of that brain focus, brain centric focus, then you're missing out on that source of information and, and wisdom. Um uh, so like I, I was at the science museum in London one time and I saw they had this ter very creepy, uh, entire nervous system just, uh, <laughs> there to, mm. to look at and walk around. And it, mm. it looks like a big, it looks like the flying spaghetti monster, but, but, but also, but it looks mm. like, it looks like a, a very strange, like jellyfish or something. It looks like something from the sea. Uh, mm. and, mm. and I had this ridiculous or uh, if I, if it was, if I was in a dorm room and, and just had a big bong rip, I would have, this would, this would not seem ridiculous. <laughs> this would seem absolutely, um, uh, earth shattering, but I felt like, uh, you know, I was like, oh, so like our body's like a, 
our body our body is like this this uh little little dollop of the sea that we're taking around and this is this this mm-hmm. n- nadarian with all these tentacles <laughs> yeah, we're this yeah. jellyfish inside this uh life support thing and my oh oh my body is just a uh a spacesuit. It's for, just an envelope. Yeah, yes. my body is an Earth suit for this seafaring thing <laughs> that that evolved and came out of the ocean. And I was like, mm, and I had these feelings. That's, but I love the. That is pretty trippy. I love it. The the uh, <laughs> in my best moments, I think of uh, my best moments just are still bong rip moments. So the um, I like the idea, but but when you think of, I'm thinking about what you're talking about here, and like when you see the nervous system, when you see the brain and all of its associated. Uh, uh, um, spinal nerves and everything it extends all the way out you can almost see the body in it right it's not just stuck in your skull it extends all the way through you right no so thinking is literally a full body experience but we don't we don't we we don't think of it that way we locate it right up here and that's cutting ourselves off from all this this flow of information that we could be taking advantage of yeah and you, you use a term called brain bound uh, yeah, I like this term yeah. a lot. I'm going to steal it from you uh, and use it all the time. <laughs> well, I stole it from Andy Clark, so that's okay. Only fair. Good, good. Bra- <laughs> what do you mean by brainbound? And and, and as, as a follow up question, you can just go ahead and roll into your answer. The, there's a you talk about how not only is there a lot of brainbound thinking, but it seems to also be the basis of education and management and leadership and training. Yeah. That um, you were saying there is no corresponding. This is from your book. There's no corresponding cultivation of our ability to think outside the brain. Uh, while we're still talking about, you know, interception, like I feel like there's a way to, to couple that with being brain bound and, uh, and how odd it is that we start from there when we try to teach people anything. Yeah. Well, what do we do when we have kids come into a classroom? We have them sit down, stay still, don't talk to your neighbor, you know, don't doodle or, or, um, you know, do anything to change your, your, your space. And, um, and that's how we think we should be learning and thinking. And it goes against every impulse, every inclination of ourselves as human beings. And so that's what I mean by brain bound is that we, we locate thinking in the head, mm-hmm. in the brain, and we focus all our energies on brain centric strategies for learning and thinking and what I'm saying is, and I, I, you know, I write this in the book that in doing all the research for this book, I felt like I was acquiring a second education in how to think outside the brain. But that was not something I was ever taught, you know, in all my years of school and and college and graduate school. No one ever taught me how to use my the internal sensations of my body to inform my decisions. For example, no one ever taught me how to move my body in order to uh, enhance my thinking or, or how to move my hands. Um, oh yeah. Let's get into it. What, uh, gesture, move, moving your yeah. body can nudge you toward a deeper understanding. You said that. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. So what's interesting is that again, the, the brain did not evolve to think abstractly. We, we still put everything in these concrete embodied terms. And we can see that even in our language, you know, we use these metaphors, like we say, I'm reaching for that goal, or I'm really feeling down today. You know, it's, it's all, and, and that's not, those aren't just figures of speech. It's, it's because in order to understand something abstract, we have to put it in terms that are, are put it in terms that our body has actually experienced. So because we think in these metaphorical ways, moving the body can actually prime the brain to uh, think in certain ways. And the the easiest example of this to understand is the fact that a lot of us have good ideas when we're 
walking or, or running or exercising in some way for me, it's riding my bike, which I, I try to do every day. Um, and there's something about that fluid forward motion that primes the brain to think, um, in ways that are dynamic and fluid and creative. And, you know, you can even see that in, in the ways we talk about creativity, we say we're on a roll or our, our thoughts are flowing or when, when that's not happening, we're in a rut or we're stuck, you know? So moving the body can actually get a process started whereby the brain follows its lead where, which, you know, it's reversing the usual arrow of causality. Cause usually we think, oh, the brain tells the body what to do, but actually this is the brain kind of, uh, this is the body sort of leading the way. I, uh, I super dig this a whole lot. The uh, especially back in the, with embodied cognition studies that that mm -hmm. always freaked me out before I had a different construct of of how anything worked. The the at that time the feeling the idea that your thoughts could be affected by holding something hot or cold uh, mm -hmm. or walk are are getting up and walking over here versus somebody who doesn't get up and walk over here um, seemed nonsensical to me because I was still very brain bound as you would put it. Um, but, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I, and now with your book, I'm even more like, uh, I feel even more enlightened. Oh, so, Hey, thank you for enlightening me by the way. <laughs> thanks <laughs> oh, for, the, really thanks for all that enlightenment. Um, <laughs> thank you. what I am you're a welcome. super hand gesture and this is, this, this is why this sucks so much for me personally, because I need, I need a space where I can do this constantly, like Jeff Goldblum. Uh, but you have a whole chapter about this, about gestures mm -hmm. with hands can bolster our memory and other things. Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's so fascinating about gesture is that it turns out that our newest ideas, our most cutting edge and most advanced ideas, they often show up first in our hand gestures. And that's before we can really put them into words. But then when we express them spatially, through gesture, we can use that kind of self-generated information. I mean, we're, you know, we're putting it out there. We're, we're, we're reading it off our hands. Mm. We can use that to inform our verbal accounting. So, and what's so odd is that like gesture. Loop with our own hand gestures. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. And what's so odd is that again, this brain bound uh, um, bias we have um, is feeds into this idea that gesturing is kind of gauche, you know, or it's like, it's just hand waving and it's, it's, um, distracting and you should really, you know, someone who's, who's under control and, 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 um, in possession of themselves isn't, isn't waving their hands all around when actually gesturing is, 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 is a visible component of thinking. And when we, when we, when we tell kids, for example, you know, fold your hands in your lap or don't, don't, don't move around so much, we're really, um, impeding their, their thinking processes. This makes so much sense. I mean, when the brain, okay, if we were to stay brain bound and be a brain in a jar, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the brain references its own it, the last thing it did to make sense of the next thing it's going to do and is constantly referring mm -hmm. back to the all of its actions at the neural level without before it incorporates body stuff so uh it would make it makes sense to me all of a sudden that the if i was to it would also if you add gestures to its repertoire that it will then also re reference the gestures and feedback loop on that which means that like i can keep doing concentric circles out that everything that yes. everything i do is becomes feedback into the next thing that I do in in the chain of processing. So it makes, yeah, my entire environment is part of my thinking. I understand your thesis fully all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> 
You've had you've had a revelation. Yeah, I like really like that word loops because it turns out that that is how thinking happens best is being passed in and out in in the in into the brain, out of the brain, back into the brain, making those concentric loops as you said is how thinking works best. And those loops don't just have to be gestures and movements. They can also be passing it through the minds of other people. Mm. It could be passing it through physical space so that you put it out, you know, on a piece of paper or on a whiteboard, and then you think about what's on the whiteboard, you know, and, but that's not, we usually, again, the brain bound model has thinking happening just in here. And so we're missing out on all the fruitful benefits of, of creating those loops and, um, and making those loops happen as often as possible. I mean, um, even we like with, I mean, with a book, you you know this intimately, like the, uh, if at some point the book's smarter than you are about the topic, about that topic. And <laughs> hopefully, like, yeah, <laughs> like I have had this experience of like, well, let me go look at the book to see what I said about that. Or, mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I need to reference my own book before this interview. I need to remember what, mm-hmm. how the, I need to remember what this is. Uh, at some point it, you know, there's no way you can keep all that in one. I mean, you're going to be able to refer to it as best you can, but, uh, mm-hmm. the book is that you're that is a gigantic feedback uh, mechanism for referring back to all the things you thought, felt, and experienced in creating that one giant argument. Uh, that's the value of journaling every day. Uh, I just, I, mm. I more often discover what I think about something or have uh, epiphanies through journaling or through taking notes than I do through anything else. I don't, yes. I, very, I don't get the, the same kind of epiphanies with my fingers full, uh, interlaced behind my head in bed when I'm looking at the ceiling going, <laughs> Hmm, yes, 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 yes. I, I right. it's more, it, I have to be doing something and then referring back to the thing. Um, uh, uh, right. Which is, and that kind uh, of, also, that kind of offloading, you know, that gets the mental contents out of your head so that you don't have to keep it in mind anymore. You can inspect it with your senses. You can, if you put mm-hmm. it on post-it notes, you can actually physically move it around and basically turn your ideas into objects that you're manipulating. Again, this is what the brain evolved to do. We didn't evolve, as you say, to just sort of ponder the universe. We evolved to make stuff and grasps up with our hands. And so the more we can turn ideas and abstract thoughts into concrete objects in the world, the you know, the better we can think about them. Um, there's this thing that I, I, I uh, want you to wax poetic about, which is natural spaces. Mm. Um, there, this is a chance for an expert science journalist person who's been obsessed with the thing for a long time to really, uh, put down some practical, prescriptive, useful thoughts about this thing that feels, I, I never know how to approach this, um, uh, I want to approach it without skepticism and without uh, cynicism, and uh, and I have felt awe and experienced some nice, some great natural experiences. And coming from a, a, a very rural part of the world uh, that's very into uh, outdoor lifestyle, um, I don't know. I, I, I to see it in your book was like, hmm. And I want to, I want you mm. to, to tell us mm. a little bit about what this offers yeah. us when it comes to mind expansion. Yes. Well, writing about our experiences in nature is a little bit of a different challenge than other parts of the book because I don't have to convince anybody that feels that it feels good to go outside mm-hmm. and look at trees <laughs> and be in, among the green, uh, you know, expanses. And um, what's what I set out to do instead in that chapter was to explain in scientific terms why that would be the case. That it's not just a kind of 
mushy, gushy, you know, feel good tree hugging, like, oh, we, we are one with nature. <laughs> There's actually really hard scientific evidence for why nature has that effect on us. And it has to do again with how our brains evolved that we, 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 we evolved outside, you know, our really, uh, sort of housebound life is a very recent, uh, and car bound life is a really recent invention. And our, our forebears lived a life that, you know, as one ecologist put it would look to us like a camping trip that lasts a lifetime. Like they were, <laughs> they were outside their whole lives. Yeah. So we, we evolved to process the kind of sensory information that is present in abundance in nature. And that, Though that kind of sensory information is really different from the kind of sensory information that we encounter either inside in, in, in built interiors or in, in cities and really highly built up and constructed kind of environments. And those latter kinds of environments, the man-made environments, um, they have a lot of hard edges. They have a lot of sudden movements. They have a lot of loud noises they're very draining to our, mm. our attention, our attentional system. They, they take a lot of intense focus to navigate and to, um, to make our way through nature is, is the opposite. It's nature is full of, um, stimuli that produce what psychologists call a state of soft fascination. I really like that term that, cause I think we all have like sort of zoned out when you're watching the waves on a, in the ocean or watching the wind rustle the trees, the leaves of a tree. And we know that, that, that we do enter this kind of relaxed yet still kind of alert um, state when we're in nature. And what that does is it replenishes our, our attentional capacity. And what I, what I noticed since I have done this research is that we, we focus so much, we talk so much about how do you spend your attention? How do you direct your attention? How do you control and manage your attention? But we never talk about, we talk about how we spend it, but we never talk about how we fill up the tank. Mm. You know, we never talk about replenishing that resource that we're so concerned with. How are we, how and where are we directing it? I love it. this so much. I love this so much. And the way, the way to refill the tank is to go outside. You're making me lean back in my chair. Um, <laughs> the, the, right before COVID, I went on, I was invited to a, uh, a retreat to where we, everybody had to give like a little 10 minute lecture, uh, but, but the other three days of it, we just hung out outside, uh, at campfire at night, just farting around during the day. And, Sounds nice. and it was great. <laughs> yeah. It was right before COVID. Like it was right before it was like mm. two months before. Uh, and, but I remember everyone after that having this, like, I don't understand why this is so good. Like mm. everyone's like, I feel mm. more grounded, centered, and more authentically myself and more able mm -hmm. to parse what is and is not important in my life than I ever have before. And it only took four mm -hmm. days in the wilderness. Uh, mm. Why? And then all of us were trying to figure it out. Um, mm. But uh, through your chapter on this in the book, I was like, oh, that's probably it. <laughs> Which, mm -hmm. so thanks for solving that mystery. And I think that's oh, really good. You're welcome. But it's also I even talk about the uh, the... Right. I even talk about the three day effect, which is what you guys must have been experiencing that, you know, even a few minutes outside can have this effect on our attention. But when we really are able to spend extended time in the in the outdoors, uh, like ideally, like three days or more, then we they're really more substantial uh, mental changes. The that, three that day happen, effect. Which sounds like. All right. 
three day effect. Yeah, that may have been what you're experiencing. Annie Murphy Paul is that I want to an excuse uh, <laughs> to go into. Yes, I am show. now going to say I'm now going to add this to my uh, dogma, which is every, once a year I have to spend three full days in nature from now on. And I'm going to, mm. if anyone asks mm. why I do that, I'm going to reference this conversation in your book. Yes. It's science. It's, it's science. Yeah. That's, that's what I'll say first. And they, what do you mean? Then yeah. I'll tell them. Uh, right. um, as a final question, uh, because of, uh, but I, 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 really, I want you to know, I love this work and I love that you, um, oh, I love any book that, that insists upon itself. I love any work, any any creative effort that insists upon itself. So I love mm. that you're telling me that you didn't brute force this book; that it emerged from the mm. from the chaos that you extracted it from from the uh, from much. the veil of ignorance. Uh, um, <laughs> the, I, I love a books like that. I mean, I feel it makes me feel more like it's a living entity that you uh, that mm. you you're its attending spirit who ushered it into the mortal realm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. The you, it was just like that. <laughs> it was just. I, it is <laughs> books are so different on the, after they're after they're out there, aren't they? The, the in, halfway through this, I, I'm sure you, you you had considered spending more than three days in the wilderness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as soon as it comes out, I'm I'm off. I'm, yeah, I'm backpacking. Um, mm-hmm. The last part of the book is all about people and collaborating. Um, referencing other experts, uh, referencing experts, collaborating with, with colleagues, and then just groups thinking at the group level with other groups. Let's just mush yeah. all that together into one big ball and tell us some fun stuff about that. Mm-hmm. So people will go buy the book and read the details. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm going to reference evolution one more time and point out that human beings were evolved. We evolved to think with people. And yet so often we engage in our thinking, alone. And that leads to a lot of problems. In fact, I write in the book about how there's these cognitive biases, which I'm, I'm sure you've, you've thought about and read about ne- and talked never about. Never heard which, of it. Um, uh, <laughs> tell me about what these are. Uh, you know, like if anyone out there has read Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, the idea is that the, the human brain is riddled with all these, um, these cognitive biases, which get in the way of clear thinking. And there's some really interesting work in cognitive science that suggests that Actually, that's just a problem of the brain thinking alone, that when we think mm-hmm. with other people, you, um, a lot of those biases disappear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. This is this is huge. This is a uh, uh, there's a whole chapter in my book devoted to that one thing, which is uh, oh. I felt like it was important that I destroy everything I'd built up into this point uh, <laughs> because uh, <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll, I want you to finish your thought. But I just want to jump in and say, uh, I, yeah, I'm so happy about this. Hugo Mercier, Dan Sperber, all their work. Uh, yes, 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 yes. yes. Love I, those, I've hung love out, I've hung out with Mercier quite a bit for my most recent work. Um, oh, wow. And I can't wait to read this. It's so yeah. good. And uh, the the fundamental thing, which is uh, that I'm going to, I spent a whole chapter destroying my own, my last two books and then my podcast mm-hmm. in, in, in a sense that everything when it comes to biases, fallacies, heuristics that goes into pop psychology, uh, almost all that work all those things we can say, hey, look at this person doing this thing. Uh, almost all of it, the effects are mitigated by just letting people talk to other people. And but right, just run the study right. again and let people talk to other people. So I'll, I'll, yes. I'll like I'll, I'll I'll stop there. Please go on. Yeah. Well, I'll just say that um, you know, and here's here's a way to put that into action, which is social activities like storytelling arguing and debating, teaching other people, they engage cognitive processes that 
remain dormant when we're just alone in a room thinking by ourselves. So the more you can engage in those kinds of activities and they're fun, right? I mean, (laughs) it's fun to like, to hang out with other people and do those things. And I think it's a shame that we've really excluded those kinds of activities for, for the, um, in large part from formal education and from the workplace. And we expect people to sit at their desks and think alone. And we're not even getting the best results that we could when we, when we arrange things that way. So bringing, leveraging our social nature as, as human beings, leveraging that instead of trying to push it aside and say, oh, social life is over here and academic and professional work is over here. When we're, when we're working, when we're learning, we're serious and we're not, we're not, we're not social butterflies, you know, actually we should be taking advantage of all our strengths as social beings and bringing that into the learning and working processes to, to make them better. Yeah. Is there, you got any advice about how we can start? Well, you could look for somebody to argue with, <laughs> which you probably, you, not, you're not arguing with anybody on your show, but you, the exchange of ideas I'm sure has probably helped you think a lot better I, over, I am, over the many years. I am cheating at this game. I mean, I am, I, I have found a scam, which is I get the, anything that's interesting to me, I get and ask them on the show. And then now I have a conversation mm-hmm. with them and naturally something comes out of it that I have never thought of on my own. Um, mm-hmm. and I've got this nice little brain trust over at NYU that I bounce ideas off of. Uh, yeah, there's nothing like it being journalists, journalists have, are running a big scam where they get to talk to people who are <laughs> smarter than them at all to all the time. And then they come yes. up and then they make them come up with ideas for projects and it makes them seem really smart. Yeah. Um, it sure beats working for a living. I love the idea that debate is stifled by the fact that a certain kind of thinking remains dormant when you're thinking alone. Yeah. Kind of gives you hope, right? For humankind. If we can just like. Oh, I'm an extreme. Talk to each other. I'm an extreme Pollyanna. Don't even like, I will always yeah. fight people who want to be pessimistic. I think we're going to be fine. I just, we just, everybody gets to live through something weird. We're living through mega weird. We get, mm-hmm. we get, to, mm-hmm. we're living through technological yeah, no advancement kidding. and plagues and uh, uh, epistemic crises and all the rest. We get it all. Like we're going to get, and we're going to get drones and self-driving cars and AI. We get to live through right. a really weird time. So it's fine. Well, that goes back to the idea that the world is really too complex for us, or at least for our biological brains to comprehend. Yeah, we might be the last on their own. We might be the last gener- <laughs> few generations to be considered like the ancients, which I'm totally think that's super rad. <laughs> the elders. Yeah, we're the elders of the next <laughs> phase, and I think that's super rad. <laughs> huh. <laughs> so whatever you write, okay, you're creating. Yeah. Listen, Annie, you are you're putting you're these are the tomes of the ancients. Like you, you're we're uh, the last. For the next, for the AIs, for the centaur, mm. for the centaurs and the AIs to refer back to right. the elders. Um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so, so much for uh, uh, your time and also your patience with all the technological stuff. Um, oh, you're welcome. I love this. I'll promote thank it you. heavily. I think you're a fantastic uh, journalist and I love all of your work. I would love to collaborate with you in the future. And just thanks for being. Me too, David. Thank you for being Annie Murphy Paul. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. This was fun. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to SoundCloud or Stitcher or Spotify or iTunes or Omni or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me 
on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at Not Smart Blog. Also on Facebook, it's slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you would like to support this one person operation for now, help make it better, help pay for transcription, other features, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free, but at the higher amounts, you get posters, t shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. Hey, you want to really help the show? Tell everyone you know about it. Talk about it on social media. Share links. Get into arguments. Use my stuff as ammunition to make your point. And please, check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.